0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Of all the trade errors of the former Trump administration, one stands out to Cato's Scott Linsicum. He explains why we're going to be living with the consequences of that one big mistake for a long time. From a free trade perspective, there are so many errors, both intentional and intentional and uh probably mistaken that the Trump administration made with respect to trade. I can remember him threatening companies that were daring to consider to move their production to lower cost places like carrier. There were domestic content requirements that the Trump administration pushed hard on when it comes to uh, various products. But what was in your view, the worst mistake or worst error? of the Trump administration, whether they recognize it or not.
1: It is a tough call uh, since there are so many to choose from. But uh, if I had to pick one, it would be the day one uh, rejection of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, um, which was a free trade agreement that the Bush and Obama administrations had negotiated um, with a bunch of other countries in the Asia-Pacific region, um, including Canada Mexico, Japan, uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, Australia, New Zealand, so forth. Um, So uh, Trump, in a uh, bold day-one maneuver, uh, abandoned the agreement, uh, even though it had been completed uh, and was really just ready for uh, Congress to consider it. So uh, in doing that, uh, Trump set off a chain of events that we are still – very much uh, scrambling to recover from, and quite frankly, um, are pulling a bit of a Humpty Dumpty routine, trying to put the broken egg back together again, and it's not going very well.
0: What we ought to understand about uh, trade agreements, multilateral versus bilateral trade agreements, is that bilateral trade agreements sort of lock you into stuff that your next bilateral trade agreement will uh, try to get you to undo uh, or certain things will exist in conflict in a way that multilateral trade agreements, many countries participating would not do. And that's part of why they take longer. Um, so uh, this was a multilateral trade agreement that did not involve China, notably,
1: yeah. and so so there's the economic side, and well, and actually, before we get to that, let me let me say, um, ideal free trade. Uh, is just simply unilateral liberalization of your trade barriers. We're just going to lower our tariffs. We're going to let we're going to trade. Let you let our companies trade with whomever they want. Let consumers buy whatever they want. That's it. Now look. In the real world, of course, uh, politics intervenes in that simple calculation. Unfortunately, so uh, we have multilateral agreements like the, the, trade, the World Trade Organization that involves uh, 160 plus countries. Um, those are that's that's the second best option and lets you get over some of those political things. The next best option are, are large regional trade agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, and TPP certainly had flaws um, we wrote a big long analysis of it back in 2016 um, looking at, at those flaws um, but TPP also had a lot of good stuff and on the economics uh, is a pretty much your usual uh, free trade stuff we were going to lower barriers to trade um, that uh, you know for things like shoes from Vietnam right um, or expand uh markets abroad so Japanese, Agricultural trade barriers, for example, were going to be lowered. Um, And so that was going to produce your usual economic gains in gross domestic product and wages and jobs and the rest. Um, You know, of course, you get disruption too. That's what trade does. But that's going to be beneficial overall for uh, economic growth, for innovation, all that good dynamism stuff that we love. Um, So the economic side of it was, was good, but pretty straightforward. Um, the, and, and, you know, let's face it, um, because we were already trading partners with some of these countries, uh, it was not going to produce massive economic gains like say joining the WTO did in the nineties. Uh, but the big thing with TPP was beyond the economics. It was geopolitics and the geopolitics were twofold. Um, uh, most obviously uh, TPP was a way to sort of counterbalance the Asia-Pacific region, which, due to uh, very dorky things we call the gravity model of trade, um, was essentially going leaning towards China. China is a very big economy next door to most of these economies, or at least right across the ocean from some of them. And China's economic gravity was pulling our allies into their sphere of influence and and giving China a lot of uh, uh, economic influence over, over, again, countries that were our close allies, like, say, New Zealand and Japan. So the first goal was to offset some of that, giving uh, these countries and their their companies their consumers more access to the United States market giving US companies more access to their markets in increasing engagement and uh, again just kind of offsetting uh, the 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 China gravity. Um, but the second big thing was rules related and this is that uh, the United States and China, are have for years battled over defining all sorts of wonky legal terms with respect to things like uh, technical standards and, and the rest. And again, uh, the TPP was designed to lock in um, U.S. rules. Now, in some ways, I'll, I'll say this was not great. Um, intellectual property rules, for example, went too far um, in the TPP. But overall, this was a good thing uh, for U.S. companies and and kind of for the global economy writ large, um, particularly because the TPP in, contained new rules on things like digital trade, uh, on things like industrial subsidies and state-owned enterprises, uh, things that that the United States, U.S. companies, uh, and a lot of other countries and governments were concerned about with respect to China. And so it really established a very high bar in these areas. That's that's good. Um, so there were a lot of non-economic reasons for us to pursue the TPP, and that's in fact, if you listen to the justifications going back, you know, a decade or whatever, uh, that there, those are all prominently, prominently featured. Um, and and like I said at the beginning, unfortunately, we're we're realizing that the TPP uh, folks, the negotiators, were, were very much right in to be concerned about about those geopolitical things.
0: We should note here that when you talk about rules, um, China has a not great history at the World Trade Organization, but as our our former colleague Simon Lester has pointed out, when uh, complaints are brought to the World Trade Organization with China as essentially a defendant, they do ultimately follow those rules
1: yeah they tend they tend to comply you know no country is perfect the the United States certainly isn't either uh, but China tends to comply with WTO rulings um, out of a desire for uh international legitimacy to look basically look good and because they want other countries to follow dispute decisions when China is the the plaintiff. Right. So there is this self-reinforcing model to WTO dispute settlement that has proven uh, to be pretty, pretty effective uh, overall, you know, as as effective as you, you can in these kind of in this area. And
0: related to that, Donald Trump, for the most part, utterly rejected the World Trade Organization.
1: Oh, right. Right. Of course. Of course. He thought we lost a bunch of cases, which was nonsense. The United States wins almost every WTO dispute it brings. Uh, the, and and this idea that we're this saint that is uh, abused by WTO international bureaucrats was, was total nonsense. But the, that, that angle is actually important for TPP too, because uh, another goal of the TPP on the kind of geopolitical side of things was to slowly but surely bring in other countries. So TPP had a very robust accession mechanism, which was like, you could say, hey, okay, we're going to start with these 12 countries, but then maybe Thailand wants to join, or maybe uh, 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 Indonesia or uh, Taiwan, you know, there. So to create a platform for other countries to join uh, and eventually uh, do what we call multilateralize the rules that were in TPP. So essentially, you take once you get, say, let's say TPP suddenly has 20 countries that are all pretty major players that builds consensus to push those same rules at the World Trade Organization and 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 eventually get them to apply to all 160 plus members so this again is a it of course is a long-term strategic play but that that was the goal, and um, you know, again, since the United States abandoned TPP, we're seeing other countries—not the United States, but like the United Kingdom, uh, Thailand, like I mentioned, Taiwan, and others—are, uh, Korea, expressing an interest in, in getting in the what replaced uh, the TPP, the CP TPP, um, which uh, all the other TPP members went went without us, and, and they continued the agreement. So, so, and, and like I said, you know, that's, um, where we're starting to see that, um, a lot where we, where we have a lot of regrets because, um, on the economic side, um, yeah, all the other members, uh, and pretty surprisingly basically just said, well, you know, okay, you, see you later. Bye Felicia. Right. And, uh, and they went ahead and and implemented the CPTPP a couple years after Trump abandoned it. Um, since then, what we've seen is exactly the economic stuff that we, we thought we'd see. And that is that other countries have gained at the United States expense, other TPP members. Um, Canada, Australia, and the rest in in these markets. So U.S. exporters are losing out in these markets. Um, uh, consumers in the United States are losing out as well. Um, and uh, we're seeing as well um, uh, China now. Deciding, hmm, uh, we need to get into this game too. And so China has decided uh, to do this in two ways. Um, First, is China has forged its own TPP-type agreement called the RCEP Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Um, We can't call them FTAs anymore, apparently. Um, So RCEP involves a lot of the same TPP countries and uh, a couple others, and. RCEP has all of China's favorite rules um, and some of those economic gains, the liberalization of trade rules. Now, RCEP is not as comprehensive as TPP, um, but uh, studies showed that it is, again, pulling back on the economic gravity I mentioned. It is, it is giving China the economic advantages that the United States would have had had the United States been involved, and thus costing U.S. companies and, and consumers even more. Um, and then the second thing China is doing is uh, expressing interest in joining the new CPTPP. Uh, so that's probably more uh, theater uh, and really excellent trolling, quite honestly, uh, than than it is reality, because China would have to comply with all those rules on subsidies and the rest. But again, this is just simply... Uh, Putting a wedge between the United States and all of these important economies, close allies, um, that uh between our allies and the United States, right? And you know, you take Australia is, I think, a, a great example, right? China has been in some pretty significant bilateral tiffs with Australia over human rights and other issues. Um, and Australia However, uh, is really pulled into China's economic center of gravity. The Australia and they are very closely connected economies. Now we have an FTA with Australia, um, but it lacks a lot of those rules I mentioned that are kind of have evolved since uh, over the last couple of decades, right? So it would have been pretty nice to have. Uh, be in the, the TPP and to be able to say, you know, we don't want China in the TPP, and because you can control that accession process. Now we really have no say. So if China did suddenly join the CPP, CPTPP, it's in, and and we're still sitting sitting on the outside.
0: So, are there opportunities for the U.S. to rejoin the well, join the yeah. CPTPP? Have the rules changed uh, out of U.S. favor? uh, since, uh, the U S has decided not to go along yeah. with it.
1: Well, in some ways, um, it's got, the, the deal has gotten better, honestly. Um, so when the United States bailed some of those onerous things I mentioned on intellectual property that were demanded by say U S pharmaceutical companies, recording industry and rest, those got dropped. Um, some other things on investor state dispute settlement that yeah, it's kind of, there's a debate here, but those were dropped too. So in some ways, the CP. TPP was improved in ways that we free traders would like, Um, uh, but uh, now the United States has to actually accede to the agreement. Um, And that means we kind of have to go back to the drawing board a bit with these other countries. They now control our, our participation.
0: Barack Obama was never really a moral defender of trade. He would defend trade as a strategic matter uh, he didn't talk about, you know, really the the broad benefits of the goods and services that we could have through trade agreements. How it would improve Americans' lives and effectively improve their incomes, as you mentioned, um, in the Biden administration. When it comes to trade, people had some higher hopes, given the low baseline of the Trump administration. But is there any reason to think that the Biden administration is The second Trump term when it comes to trade?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot of indications of that. And this is where I think really TPP's regrets are the biggest, because since uh, TPP died, um, the U.S.-China bilateral relationship has, of course, uh, deteriorated. And this uh, great power competition has emerged, for better or worse. Um, And the Biden administration recognizes that they need to do more to offset China's economic and geopolitical gravity in this critical Asia-Pacific region um, for you know economic and security reasons. It's a really important area. Um, so they've launched this Indo-Pacific economic framework, right, which sounds uh, very much like the TPP. Um, but they've been adamant that they will not actually include any trade liberalization. So what this really is, is kind of a diplomatic framework for, who knows, um, nothing that will require congressional involvement. Um, and congressional involvement is where you actually get into the, the weeds of actual trade liberalization. Nothing that will, and this is important, nothing that will actually give the other other, IPEF IPEF members, what they want. So diplomats in New Zealand, in some of these other countries have said point blank, you know, this IPEF stuff is fine, but we want market access. We want trade liberalization. We want economic engagement. Um, that's what we need and what we want. And um, until we get that stuff, you know, this is fine, but we're not going to make big commitments on the security side. We're not going to and we're not going to really have that, again, offsetting uh, center of gravity for for the region. Um, But the Biden administration is, uh, you know, uh, not just on tariffs. You know, we talk about tariffs a lot. They're they're being very Trumpy on tariffs. But on the trade agreements, you know, their rhetoric is better. But as uh, our colleague Jim Backus has written, it's really just a lot of polite protectionism now. Um, so gone are the Trumpian rhetorical flourishes. But if you listen to USTR uh, Catherine Tai, uh, United States Trade Representative, uh, she really is sounding very, very Trumpy when it comes to uh, defending American workers, criticizing globalization, uh, and and really rejecting uh, trade liberalization in any major way um you know we've we've uh, groused on on social media a lot that we need to change the name of the office to the united states tariff representative or something because uh, there's not a lot of trade actually uh in their negotiations these days and that's really unfortunate uh, and again it's extra unfortunate because the number one thing the united states can do to offset china's rise has nothing to do with tariffs or sanctions it has to do with engaging economically in this region more you know uh, d- reducing barriers to trade with say vietnam which is a big alternative uh, market and competitor for china in like say low skill manufacturing um so the best thing we can do is to to engage with these countries and to integrate the economies uh, in order to push back. You know, the story I always tell is that I was in Seoul, Korea, right before the pandemic began. And uh, so Korea is of course very close to China, and I was amazed that uh, the billboards in Seoul are in two languages. They are in Korean, and they are in Chinese. There is no English over there. There are very few American brands, even though we have an FTA with them, right? And that, I think, is a really Stark example of just how strong China's economic gravity is. Uh, you know, the Japanese say the same thing. They're like, "Look, we would love to trade more with the United States." Um, and the Trump administration did this paltry little half deal again, trying to humpty dumpty back the TPP together. They say we would love to trade more, to trade less with China and more with the United States. But look, I mean, they're this massive market right off our shores. We're going to trade with them more, and so that's what these the TPP agreement would have helped with. It wouldn't have offset it entirely. You know, it's, not, it's not a miracle, uh, but it would have helped. And it would have been a really huge help right now as supply chains are looking to shift away from China, as there's all this geopolitical conflict, all this stuff going on, it would have been perfect. And yet we're sitting around, you know, sitting on our hands, talking about worker-centric trade policy that is really just more protectionism.
0: When I was in Saigon uh, in 2015... There was a massive there's a massive statue of Ho Chi Minh sort of with his arm out welcoming you to the 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 glory that is uh I won't call it Ho Chi Minh City. Uh and it's right by City Hall. And on either side of the statue of Ho Chi Minh is a large and very high-end shopping mall with all manner of global brands. And this is very it appears to be very much an aspirational uh item in uh, Vietnamese culture.
1: Oh yeah. And, and the, the desire for these governments and these people to, uh, trade with the United States, to be more in our sphere, um, is immense. And they say it, they very, very plain about this. Um, and you know, Vietnam is, I think the, the really, the, the biggest missed opportunity, uh, but Malaysia too. Um, Because these countries are where a lot of multinational manufacturers want to move their their manufacturing operations away from China. Right. They want to, you know, especially because China's doing a lot of stuff to themselves these days. You know, they're shooting themselves in the foot with the zero COVID stuff and a lot of the crackdowns on tech and the rest. So, so Apple and other manufacturers are eager to find other manufacturing hubs. And Vietnam and Malaysia are two of those because of, you know, population and then, uh, you know, labor and all that kind of stuff. And, so, and uh, human rights. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Of course. Right. There's uh, tons of human rights issues as well. And look, you know, those governments aren't perfect either, but it is a step up. And so we should be eagerly encouraging that type of diversification um, and that those moves. And yet we're not. And in fact, um, again, all the focus in the Biden administration or most of the focus is on bringing back manufacturing to the United States. uh, And that, of course, inhibits um, the type of diversific- supply diversification we actually want, right?
0: It is very frustrating. Uh, I mean, you've we've sort of danced around this. It is very frustrating to see somebody like uh, Joe Biden, who, as we've discussed before, at no budgetary impact, could make a whole lot of trade quite a bit easier in a moment where supply chains are crunched and people are calling Joe Biden "Empty Shelves Joe."
1: Yeah. And, and it, when you look at all of the reasons there is, there really is no good policy reason not to re-engage in the CPTPP right now. Um, The China stuff, the supply chain stuff, you name it. Um, And the inflation stuff, you know, you name it, right? There's, there's a million good reasons on the policy side. All it is is the politics. But even that, I think, is is extremely overblown. Because if you look back at the history of U.S. trade agreements, they are always big punching bags. But if the president actually decides to put some effort towards these things, uh, he can use the bully pulpit to uh, move the dial on on in congress and in among the the voting populace right you know as i've written before people don't really care about trade that much they kind of tend to go with whatever's going on in the economy or whatever their political team is doing um if you have a a president if you that really uses the bully pulpit to sell these trade agreements uh you, you can actually make a pretty significant shift um and uh you know you can you can move congress too and and the other thing is that for biden this is doubly true because there are actually a lot of republicans right now that believe it or not are clamoring for more uh trade engagement in the region. They're kind of being not Trumpy. And so, you know, there's this opportunity for good old bipartisanship, which of course Washington loves. Um, and there is a chance to have some some Republican support here too. It's not that this doesn't have to be a, you know, party line, build back better, reconciliation type thing. Um, you know, there is an opportunity for, for getting a coalition of the willing, a coalition of the sane together on this. But again, the administration appears utterly unwilling to even bring it up. Um, They are adamant expressly that this will not be a trade agreement, this IPEF thing. Uh, And that's just really depressing.
0: Scott Linsigam directs the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.